Welcome to the Adelaide's Decolonial Learning Session, Decolonizing Desires, uh, Reimagining Sexuality in the Dutch Caribbean Landscape. This de decolonial learning session will focus on decolonizing gender and sexuality in the Dutch Caribbean landscape with Wigbertson, Julian, Isenia. Uh, they are an interdisciplinary scholar and assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Amsterdam. They co-founded Black Queer Archives, which organizes panels and exhibitions on marginalized groups, such as queer activist groups of color from the 1970s and HIV and AIDS awareness among post-colonial migrants in the Netherlands. Their work focuses on gendered and sexual cultures in Curaçao, part of the Dutch Caribbean, by analyzing cultural practices such as archival collections, literature, theater, and cultural performances, combining ethnography and with archival work. So this is <clears throat> this idea of um, coloniality versus colonialism. So in a sense, in a very basic sense, um, coloniality differs from uh, colonialism in that sense that colonialism is a particular time period, right? So if you take um, the Dutch Caribbean, after 1950, they are not officially actually a colony anymore, right? But as a lot of decolonial scholars also argue that coloniality actually uh, indicate a time period after colonialism where, where ideas of colonialism still persist. So indeed, it can persist in culture, labor, in ideas of uh, relations, but also knowledge. And one example I have always um, during my teachings is the focus on English, right? Um, and at the expense of very native languages and culture. And in, in the Netherlands itself, it's the same. So for example, in Curaçao, uh, in Aruba, only in the, the end of 2000s, um, 2006, I might, if I'm not mistaken, in 2007, they became, Papimintu became official language. But before that time, Dutch was the lingua franca in both of the islands uh, in Curaçao. So coloniality is also, is also this idea that um, this very uh, dominant notion of superiority in terms of language and culture persists after colonialism. So this term was coined by Anibal Hikano and it addresses the enduring legacies and structure of colonialism. So it goes beyond, as I said, the period of former colonial rule. And for him, it was this concept that um, indicates not only uh, legalities, but also the, the whole structure of the society. So going back to the social structure, the culture, how we think, uh, what is important, for us, the power relations, uh, but also impacting racial and social hierarchies. If you have questions, please ask them. I cannot see them now, but I will address them uh, if you in a bit. So Kijano uh, traces this idea of a modern colonial world, right? 
So where certain parts of the world are claiming modernity and in um, and because of that, some other countries and other parts of the world are seen as not modern or so-called backward, right? So it traces this root of difference from 1492 when um, uh, uh, the Spanish uh, 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 stepped or um, colonized the, the Americas. And as I said, it works as a framework to disqualify others as unmodern or pre-modern or not modern enough. And in this sense, Europeans consider themselves as the, as the, the high ground of modernity and others as not modern enough. So they were put on a scale of who is modern, who is not modern. And in a sense, indigenous people were situated outside of modernity and thus they were deemed, um, uh, they, so they can be enslaved by the Europeans or colonized by the, by the Europeans. But of course, as Kihan also mentions in this um, article that if we actually look at these societies, we can this 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 um, difference can cannot actually be held up, right? So if you see all the inventions and palaces and pyramids and uh, the cultures that they had, we cannot actually um, held this idea that they are so called not modern or backwards. Uh, it even says that in a lot of these places, they were more developed actually than Europe. So here you can already see this idea of uh, modernity is very much a construction, not per se true, right? As we also know. And for Quijano, as we will see also in a in a, a, a picture of different. Um, uh, spheres of coloniality of power. He says that we can also see that now, right? So through the ways in which uh, we um, we think about uh, capital, how we uh, how economic uh, transactions are, are taking place, and it's a way of um, as a common social practice. That if you if you do not partake in this practice, you are left out. Yeah, so it's so um, overwhelming, overtaking that it also dictates what others should do. So, for example, if we do not want to adopt a capitalist structure as a country, we will be left out of the economic system of the world. Right. So it also has big consequences. These ideas of colonial of power. So it dictates also borders, uh, ideas of family. So for example, in his, uh, in his work, he also um, talks about how children were um, uh, um, brought up by different families, for example. Um, however, the, when the Europeans came, there was this idea of a patriarchal idea of family where the man is uh, on top 
the mother should um, stay home to um, to uh, look for the children. Um, so this is also in the hierarchy in terms of gender and 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 in this patriarchal system. And also it relates to how individuals relate to the world, right? So it also relates to um, um, it's not about uh, per se uh, how people are well people see themselves, but it's more about how certain people, in this case Europeans, dictate a norm and thus see others to disqualify or not. So basically, we can see this idea of colonialative power in these three spheres that are interlinked. So the, the yellow and the green should also be linked, right? So in that sense, colonialative power is also linked to ideas of who is human, right? To ideas about what is important to know, um, which knowledge is important, who is able to uh, produce this knowledge and so on, so on. So these are all interlinked together. So this is a kind of a recap, a very fast one, to say that uh, Maria Lujones then said, yes, I agree with this concept of colonial of power, but we miss a crucial part of this scheme. So she introduces this idea of coloniality of gender in this uh, scheme. So in that sense, it's she adds to this uh, theory to say that gender is not a so-called natural thing. It's a constructed thing that was introduced by uh, colonialism. So the ways in which we think about gender, for example, what is a man, what is a woman, but not only that, that they have different expectations also stems from colonialism. So in this article um, of chapter to coloniality of gender, um, she expands on this idea of coloniality of, of, of gender to look at the ways in which uh, different ideas, European uh, ideas were introduced in the Americas, but also the, in ways in which some indigenous ideas and cultures were erased because of that. So in a sense, she combines the intersection of colonialism, patriarchy and gender together in this article. So again, um, this, this introduction of coloniality of gender introduces some expectations of, for women, for example. So um, even though in some uh, communities, women were indeed uh, responsible for uh, caretaking, they had also leadership roles, right? Um, so it didn't exclude them from uh, decision-making, but also of power. But uh, how, so the way Lugones also uh, explains this is that 
by this introduction of so-called European values, they were reduced not only so to only be um, caretakers, but they didn't even have other roles, uh, important roles in societies. Next to that, um, she uh, mentioned that through how uh, Western feminisms or white feminists um, were thinking about uh, um, uh, emancipation, were excluding certain ways and cultures that did not um, completely adhere to these Western uh, constructs. And I will come back to this in a bit. I want to just mention someone else, um, Jack Alexander. So, so Jack Alexander works mostly on uh, Trinidad and Tobago and Bahamas from the English Caribbean, the former English Caribbean. And in this article in Feminist Review in 1994, she talks about not just anybody can be a citizen because some, <laughs> because some people are more productive than others. And what's interesting about this work is that uh, she's, she combines both the time of colonialism and after colonialism, so after, so during post, a post-colonial time, to say that a lot of times the nation is being taught as something, as, as a heterosexual, or that only heterosexuals are counted as citizens. So one of the ways she's uh, trying to, to say this is through the regulation of gender and sexuality through laws, right? So um, you might know that in the English Caribbean inherited a lot of the um, sodomy laws from UK, right? Wherein certain relationships, so mostly non-normative relationships were regulated. But even after colonialism, so after independence, these laws were kept. So these caps were not contested, even though colonialism itself was contested, these colonial laws were not contested. So they were adopted and actually also um, integrated in what, what, it, what it means to be an English Caribbean um, a citizen. So in this very interesting article, she links ideas about regulating gender through laws, sexuality, race, and class to pinpoint that even though colonialism is over, within post-colonialism, we should be careful not to reproduce all of these aspects. So in a sense, she's saying that uh, the state mobilizes heterosexuality. So through ideas of the heterosexual family, through ideas of um, we need to still uh, regulate and persecute different 
uh, homosexual or trans um, practices, um, but also in a very social scene, undermining different or other sexual orientations. And this can be um, very subtle things. So it can be people dismissing uh, people's uh, gender um, um, performance, but it can also be parents not accepting their child, right? So it can be very subtle um, uh, issues. And she says that we need a broader analytical framework to understand these issues. So if we only um, addresses uh, the colonial past or the current post-colonial um, uh, issues in terms of um, uh, uh, freedom, for example, in terms of, for example, looking at only at the slavery past or looking only at certain uh, legislation uh, in terms of citizenship that we need to uh, look at, but not, for example, looking at gender sexuality, that will miss the whole point. So she's saying we need a broader framework to look into these aspects. So in this uh, sense, the coloniality of gender is still interesting uh, and important because it informs the ways uh, a lot of countries still think of so-called uh, third world countries or so-called um, global south countries. So for example, in Curaçao, there was this idea in the 1904, 1994, that um, the Curaçao women were too uh, homosexual and thus not modern, right? So this, uh, this parliamentarian went to Curaçao, and we'll talk about him in a bit. He went to Curaçao and he saw a lot of women doing things. What, were, what they were was not clear, uh, but he was shocked. And he was saying there were um, uh, bosom friendships and women taking care of children, and this needs to stop basically. And so they were not modern. But what's interesting about this idea of not being modern enough is that this framework is still being used today. However, because now the Netherlands is seen as this progressive uh, homosexual paradise, um, this framework is still used, but now they say, for example, Curaçao is not modern enough because they don't have the legislation in to, to back this up, right? So again, the framework is still used, but the Netherlands is seen as modern always. And in this case, Curaçao is seen as un, uh, not modern. So only the, I would say, the, the, the stipulations are changed, but the framework stays the same. And it also, uh, brings about ideas of intersectional feminism. So as we know, it it complicates this idea of not only looking, for example, at race, but also at gender, sexuality, disability, to make a more complex picture of our lives. And in a sense, this is also the, the, the goal, right? So if we want a decolonial future, 
it should also we should also think about this aspect within that future and what does it mean what does it mean then if we would think about gender sexuality within our decolonial future so we will think about that after the the, the lecture so we will be very much hands-on trying to work with this idea um but i want now to translate what i've what i've said through the dutch context and um the Dutch context is a very complex situation where the Dutch has been colonizing left and right. Um, and these are only a few um, um, places that they colonized. And uh, what is not here is, for example, Curaçao that has been colonized for, uh, by the Dutch at least from 1634 with some intermissions. We can talk about intermissions uh, if you want. Um, and the difficulty of these all is that how can we think about the different parts of the Dutch colony together without um, without homogenizing them as such? So to only think that because, for example, um, Indonesia or uh, what is now called New York and Brazil and Curaçao and Suriname were all colonized by the Dutch. It doesn't mean that we have the same frameworks to analyze them as such, right? So they are all different. The only thing they have in common is that the Dutch colonized them. And this also, you can see that back in different ways, uh, how the Dutch regulated sexuality and gender. Yeah. So I will skip a few things, but if you have questions about some things, you ask me, please. So the Dutch started to regulate uh, non-normative sexuality early on from the 18th century. So in the Netherlands itself, we had a lot of we had a, the the pre-Napoleonic pre code. Um, and in this time, so in the 18th century, you see a lot of the, most of the uh, sodomy uh, persecutions. Uh, the most um, uh, famous one was the Utrecht uh, sodomy persecution, where hundreds of people were um, uh, put to, to, to trial and killed. Um, and then, so, and also during this time, you saw more and more, um, countries being colonized by the Dutch. So you would think that the, um, no, I would say shirts like this. So there was this rule, which was this rule of um, what's, what is um, enacted in the Netherlands should also be enacted everywhere in the colonies. Yeah. However, this was not the case always. So it depended a lot on the governor or on how strict the judges were on this specific um, 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 colony. So it different through times, right? Uh, and also it different through, so the, on the, the status. So if someone was very rich, uh, they might not get the same treatment. Um, or for example, 
if this person um, uh, um, um, uh, didn't confess, for example. So there was this whole uh, problem of we need a confession in order to uh, put someone on trial. Um, and sometimes this confession was um, um, very violently, so um, uh, uh, they tried to, to let someone confess through um, different methods. So by um, cutting fingers and so on. So they would try to still get some confessions through this through these measures so you can already see that how it was regulated was very difficult but also it didn't it also uh change through time and place what's important to know is that after um after uh, the eight the 19th century um sodomy so after the dutch was uh, colonized by france right uh, so the during the Napoleonic Code, all sodomy laws were removed. Yeah, um, and then for the first time in 1911, there was this spe special uh, age of consent. So it was a, uh, the age of consent was called um, law was 248 bis law, which differentiated between homosexual. Uh, sex and heterosexual sex. So in this law introduced in 1911, um, homosexual sex, uh, so you could not have a relationship with someone under 21 years old if you would have a homosexual relationship, whereas with a heterosexual relationship, this was 16. So there was a difference in, um, in gender and how they were regulated. And to, to, to um, think about coloniality as we started the, the presentation. So after in the Netherlands, this specific law was uh, removed in 1971. It was also removed in the Dutch Caribbean islands, but because Suriname and Indonesia were um, at that time or already independent or um, in the process of becoming independent, they did not remove this uh, law. And it's still a remnant of the Dutch colonial past. So what is what this is clear about these regulation is not only that these uh, people were regulated, but also it shows that same-sex desiring people did exist right, from early on. And in the case of Curacao, you see that through, as I said, Cambrada relationships that this parliamentarian was talking about at the end of 19th century and the beginning of 20th century. So what is Cambrada? So Cambrada, this is um, 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 a definition from the erotic dictionary, erotic dictionary from Curacao. Uh, from 1992, and at one hand, Cambrada is uh, are two women who have an intimate relationship with each other, so sexual intercourse, for example, or uh, yeah, sexual intercourse. Um, but also, 
um, which is not mentioned here, it also indicates a more uh, amicable relationship. So it was not always clear if it was an erotic or just friends, right? And this you can also see in the descriptions of these uh, women that um, you see a lot of these white men who were writing about them, they were frustrated by them, but you could not actually uh, pinpoint why they were mad. Were they mad because they were just friends? And I was also wondering, reading these books, and I was thinking, what did you see? And how did you see that, right? So it's also these ideas of how uh, gossip may uh, play a role in these descriptions of these women. So basically, there were three books about these women up until 1925. So the first one is about is from um, a, a school teacher um, in 1886, Brüssel. The second one is from this parliamentarian, Van Kool, in 1904, and in 1923, uh, Kroon. So Brüssel and Van Kool, they're both uh, Dutch. Uh, so Van Kool is a parliamentarian, and Brüssel is a school teacher that came from the Netherlands to work in Curaçao. And Kroon, on the other hand, was a Curaçaoan uh, living in Curaçao. Um, and he was working with the Roman Catholic Church. So what you can uh, discern from this uh, picture is that after abolition of slavery, people were preoccupied with how to how to educate the recently freed. Yeah, so they were very much preoccupied uh, to um, to to regulate. Uh, how these uh, people would uh, deal with their freedom. So they didn't think they could deal with their freedom in a, in a way that was acceptable, so they had to regulate it in some sort. In a sense, in this period, you don't have any legal regulations about Cambrara. Yeah? So of course, in 1915, which was four years after the introductions of the 1911 Age of Consent, and three years uh, before it was enacted in Curaçao. So it was not immediately enacted in Curaçao. Uh, so as you see here, only in 1918, the Age of Consent was introduced in Curaçao and the colonies. So after the um, the oil refinery was in, was opened in Curaçao, there was also a lot of tension within a lot of authorities because they felt that a lot of uh, people outside of Curaçao who didn't have a Roman Catholic lifestyle would come and mess up with this with with this um, um, with these lifestyles that are proper and Roman Catholic, right? So Crone wrote a novel actually, um, writing about a woman, a Cambrada woman, who was uh, living a very bad life. And in the end she dies 
and um, but she repents her sins. Um, and these novels, there are plenty of them uh, about other topics, for example, um, uh, drinking um, uh, a lot or incest or um, uh, different topics. Uh, they were read out loud to the to the uh, community because some of the people were um, could not read. They were read out loud by by the priest, but also members of the community. So in a sense, you see that the novel was an addition to this uh, legal uh, law, right? So uh, some people thought that this legal uh, this this law was not enough. So we had to think of other measures, such as cultural practices, such as a novel, to regulate these uh, women. So these are the three books. And in a sense, um, they were all very negative about these women. And I will show you some, some quotes um, in a bit. Um, so the, they all show very much uh, uh, a prejudice um, regarding women in this camaraderie relationship. So again, to just to to um, to summarize, the books by Brussel and Van Kool, so the first two written in Dutch, fall in the first period and show how Europeans in the colonies dealt with the aftermath of slavery through their descriptions of Cambrara women. After the abolition of slavery, the Roman Catholic Church, so the third book, felt the need to educate Afro-Curacaoans, especially children and women, how to be respectable. And the book by Crone, written in Papimento, so the other two first books were written in Dutch, and they were also meant for a metropolitan, a European audience. And the third book was written in Papimento for the lower social class to show how female same-sex relationships and immigrants to the islands became indicators of moral decay and how the Roman Catholic Church played a crucial role in shaping attitudes towards women engaging in camaraderie relationships. So again, there was a side-by-side um, um, -side regulation, not only by the state, but also the Roman Catholic Church. So I want to finish this more historical part to come to the 70s and 80s. Uh, to show how this idea of Cambrara still persisted up until that, then, right? Um, so even though these works are very much colonial and also very negative, you can also see some traces of these women's lives, uh, even though these very racist and sexist texts. So it shows some crucial dimensions of these women's lives that you cannot otherwise find right anymore because they didn't had so, so they didn't record their their voices in other ways they didn't write their own books so these are for now the only ways we can actually um get a glimpse into their lives i want to move to uh to the uh, 70s and 80s where someone like Fidi martina also um had a lot of linkages with these camarada women, even though it's, it's like 70 years apart. 
And for me, it also uh, let us rethink ideas about identity and sexuality. So to wrap, to uh, recap, Cambrada women were women that um, had a Cambrada relationship, but did not call themselves Cambrada. So it was not an identity, uh, but a more practice-based uh, relationships. So you're not a Cambrada, you're not a Cambrada, but you do a Cambrada or you have a Cambrada relationship. Is it clear? Yeah. So this is also something you can see back in Frida Martina. So Frida Martina uh, was actually involved in a lot of the so-called lesbian uh, movement in the Netherlands. She died in 2014, unfortunately. Um, but even though she was in these circles, she every time she questions the, the very term lesbianism. So she says, when asked um, in a gay magazine, um, no, this is this was a, a this was a, a panel discussion about queer theater or, or lesbian theater, and uh, so she knew because it was a, it was a lesbian conference. So she came, she was invited there at the lesbian uh, panel uh, about lesbian theater, and someone asked her, "Hey." do you make lesbian theater? And she said, well, I would like to ask other questions. So far, the definition of the term lesbian is not clear to me. That's one. How it works in practice makes that question gesture. And you hear laughter from the audience. Furthermore, I think if you only approach being a lesbian from either a social or romantic perspective, it's incredibly limited. I live and work with a, with a woman, but don't call it lesbianism. So in a sense, what's interesting here is that she, uh, I think, she, of course, she knew what lesbianism is, but she questions this idea that it that it was a universal uh, label that could be applied to her, right? And what she, she also uh, does is that she says, my understanding of my relationship is not only social or romantic, it's also related to labor, yeah? So this is not something that only she was talking about. This is something also that was happening at the same time. This is, this is in the eighties. So uh, at one point in the 84, Audre Lorde came to the Netherlands and she had a very interesting and beautiful conversation with Astrid Rumer. And I don't know if you know uh, Audre Lorde. So she would say, I'm a black lesbian mother. So she has all these, identities that she claims, right? Whereas Rumer says, Astrid Rumer says, no, if I, um, if I articulate these labels, it also kills them. I have relationship with these women, but it does, it does not necessary to categorize them or label them. They can coexist. And it's not something, it's not about being in the closet, so to speak. It's more about a different understanding of sexuality. And I wanted to also mention this is not to say that you cannot be a, a, a lesbian or a, a gay or, or queer, but to say that it also opens up 
other ways of being, other ways of doing sexuality. So Martina questions the self-evident and universal meaning of the term lesbian. Like many other Caribbean thinkers, think of also Gloria Wecker, Drummer, uh, she rejects this term in the local context of Dutch Caribbean. These terms mainly are originating in a Euro-USA context, these scholars argue, are devoid of any cultural and historical specificity to the Caribbean and contribute to the erasure of local words and culture relating to gender sexuality. I wanted to share two other uh, uh, issues and then we can take a break. Uh, um, so Martinez repeated refusal of the term lesbian while also participating at the lesbian festival um, reminds me of this idea of strategic entanglement. So in a sense, this idea of being within a situation or, or um, a, a, a conference, for example, of lesbian and still critique it. Or for example, I think uh, of ways in which we can still be in the Netherlands and still critique it, right? So a way of crafting and acting at autonomy within a system from which one is unable to fully disentangle. We can talk about it in a minute. I just want to, to close with this fragment. Ik ben een uh, beroemde flikker op uh, Curaçao en ook denk ik door het feit dat ik uh, kunstenaar ben, wordt mijn, uh, uh, mijn flikker zijn uh, geaccepteerd. Het is voor mij niet zo van ik moet nu zo nodig. Dus op het moment dat ik uh, dat doe, dan is het ook met iemand waar, waar ik ook echt iets mee voel. En dan is het voor mijzelf ook... Maakt het in principe niet eens zoveel uit of het met een man of met een vrouw is. Het is wel zo dat ik merk in mijn leven dat ik heel veel wel voor vrouwen kies. Omdat ik het geduld gewoon niet kan opbrengen met mannen. Homoseksualiteit op de Nederlandse Antillen. De Nederlandse Antillen hebben ongeveer 150.000 inwoners. En hier in Nederland wonen zo'n 40.000 Antillianen. Op de Antillen bestaat nog de Nederlandse wetgeving... En ook Nederlandse gewoonten zijn hier veelal overgenomen. De filmregisseur Felix de Rooij en actrice Fridi Martina vertellen aan Ali Karatjebaai in hoeverre op de Antillen anders over homoseksualiteit wordt gedacht dan hier in Nederland. En daarnaast is het zo dat, uh, voor zover ik weet, uh, uit eigen ervaring en ook uit uh, horen zeggen... Um, dat het heel erg um, nou, als een andere onder het gras is. Hè? En um, erg veel mensen doen eraan mee. Uh, en iedereen zijn neus bloed. Um, van de andere kant uh, vind ik dat niet per definitie iets wat je zou moeten verafschuwen. Want ik geloof dat het in ieder geval in, uh, in, in, in onze culturen... Zo is dat als je zin hebt om iets te doen, dan doe je dat gewoon. Dus naar mijn weten is het zo dat in ieder geval van vrouwen... dat er een heleboel vrouwen met vrouwen vrijen. Maar dat maakt hun niet per definitie lesbisch. Over het algemeen durf ik te zeggen dat, um, dat de niet-westerse vrouw... voor haar seksuele behoeften opkomt. Als ze dat echt wilt, dan doet ze dat. Dus kan ze het ook met een vrouw doen. 
Want het is ook zo, omdat wij ook nog ja, vanuit de zon en weet ik wat, de sensualiteit altijd, altijd aanwezig voelen. Um, en je weet ook als vrouw wat, wat je in je hebt, dan is het ook heel normaal dat die vrouwen dat met elkaar uitwisselen. Dat gebeurt ontzettend vaak. Bijvoorbeeld, ik heb zelf een tante gehad die met een vrouw samenleefde. En dat werd oogluikend gewoon toegestaan. Iedereen wist het. Sorry. En voor zover ik dat weet, ik heb het laatst ook nog gehoord, weet je wel, bij zo'n familiereunie. En dan, uh, hè? Nou, er zijn veel meerdere mensen kennelijk in mijn familie of in de naaste familiekring en uh, vriendenkring van de familie, die het met vrouwen deden. Ik geef ze geen ongelijk. Kan een homorelatie heel lang duren op de Antillen? Kan een relatie überhaupt lang duren? Ik vind het ontzettend moeilijk. De manier van denken hier in het Westen... dat alles in een hokje moet zijn. Maar kunnen twee vrouwen of twee mannen met elkaar wonen daar? Ik, ken, ik heb een vriendin die uh, samen met een andere vrouw woont. Dat, die heb ik. Alleen is het zo dat het voor de maatschappij... want ik had het zelf heel, heel lang niet door... <laughs> vermoeden het wel, maar officieel deelden ze samen een huis. Dat kan ook. Snap je? Maar ze hadden een seksuele relatie met elkaar. Ja. En voor de buitenwereld? Voor de buitenwereld niet. Snap je? Dus dat, dat soort dingen gebeuren altijd. Ik, bedoel, ik vertelde straks ook het, het verhaal van mijn tante. Voor de buitenwereld zijn het gewoon twee vriendinnen. Ze hebben ook drie kinderen geadopteerd. Dus het zijn twee, twee ouders. Hebben Antilliaanse lesbische vrouwen in Nederland hun eigen groep? Ja, ja. Je hebt, je hebt namelijk uh, de Stichting Flamboyant hè? Uh, hier in Amsterdam. Waar, uh, wat voor zwarte vrouwen is. En daar hebben ze ook uh, avonden met, uh, met zwarte lesbische vrouwen. Wat... Ben je niet op zo'n avond geweest? Ik heb, jawel, jawel, en ik heb ook met ze gedaan. Maar praat je dan niet over het lesbisch zijn op zo'n avond? Het is toch een lesbische avond. Nee, ik bedoel, dat weet je. Ik bedoel, je weet, er zijn vrouwen die van vrouwen houden. Ik bedoel, ik heb daar geen probleem mee. Dat is ook weer zo ne- echt zo'n Nederlands problematiek, weet je. je alle, alles is een probleem. Nou, ik word er doodziek van. Ik bedoel, op een gegeven moment, als men een vrouwenavond... Ik heb hier ook vrouwenavonden georganiseerd. Eén keer per maand. Er kwam alleen maar lesbische vrouwen. Ik had nooit een, een, een avond over uh, lesbische vrouwen georganiseerd om erover te praten. Nooit niet. Waar moet ik nog over praten? Hoe je het doet? <lacht> nou, <lacht> dan wordt ze te ondeugend. <lacht> so what I wanted to show by this clip and also the uh the discussion of uh, Frida Martina is not only how certain practices still remain and change through time but also ways in which we can and critique certain aspects of ourselves um in perhaps not very radical but maybe subtle ways thank you so much we can Now maybe do a few minutes of questions if you have one, and then we can go to the next part.
Yeah, if anyone has a question, you can unmute yourself or just throw it in the chat if you're too shy. Can you see it, the the chat? So should I read it to you? <laughs> I I can I can I can now. Yeah. <laughs> We can we can go to the the other part. I have questions, but it's more practical. Oh so yes, maybe, yeah. it would be maybe better for the workshop a discussion for the workshop part. Yeah. Sure. Um. So yes, maybe we can do the workshop uh part. It does require us to be a bit active. Um. So what I was thinking about in this case is to. Um, and if you want, you can also put your um, camera on so we can engage. Um, oh, there's a question. Has a queer person ever studied the, the sexual life like growing back or studied by the innocence? Kind of like a straight innocence, if mm -hmm. that makes any sense. Oh, that's interesting. Um, ba -ba -ba -ba. I, I don't think so. Um, let me think. Ba -ba 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 -ba. No, I don't. I don't think so. Um, so the, the 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 issue. So what? Um, not only what innocence, but also the politics of passion. So in that sense, Gorevacker went to Suriname uh, during a, her PhD and did a very lengthy field work there, and tried to uh, capture this whole world of the mati so mati is kind of similar to Cambrada. there are some uh, differences um but um so in that sense she captured the whole system of um how they dressed maybe in twin clothing uh uh how they um they were practicing the uh, in the Winti religion, so um, uh, it was a very comprehensive. I think, I think that it was not done because up until recently, I think maybe from the nineties or two thousands, uh, the heterosexual relationship was seen as the norm, so it was not challenged or it was just thought of like this is the norm, so it's not also interesting or important to to research so hopefully one someone or maybe one of you can can do that soon uh the second one is uh, amazing personal do you think that the tension over label focal division stems from western colonialism oh so um um so in a sense this is a very Difficult question also. It seems simple, but it's a very difficult question. Because at the one hand, you uh, have the taxonomy. I don't know if you know the taxonomy of race, for example. You had the same for gender, but within animals. So you have this very idea of what is typically male butterfly and what is typically female butterfly. Uh, so very gendered ways of thinking. Um, and... Um, 
and uh, so in that sense these taxonomies created uh, labels and also difference and at the same time there there are some um, communities that had different genders of course um, that were not introduced by the colonialism so it's a more complicated um, issue and what I also need to say is that I I think I would be very careful to say that um, um, there's a beautiful saying and I'll try to paraphrase it in a, in a good way so there's a saying about Africa so this there's a, this imagined idea of Africa this whole continent as an imagined nation right and there's a place called Africa where there's a pre-colonial mantra that um, homophobia is un-African and a post-colonial mantra that homosexuality is un-African. So in a sense, what is interesting about this quote is that they say that in both cases, so in both the pre-colonial and the post-colonial moment, uh, this idea of Africa, which is an imagined idea, creates also a kind of um, utopia. So I think we, can, we should also be careful to think that before colonialism, it was a heaven, right? In some cases it was. Um, and we should also be careful what is now much more common to label a whole country um, anti uh, or not homosexual enough, right? So it's also very, we should, we should be careful about that. Other questions? Otherwise I will go to the, oh, yes. So yeah, um, somebody asked about, I think Max asked about the research and you said, yeah, maybe one of you can do that. But I feel like when it's, precarious community, when it regards precarious communities in colonized places, neo-colonized places, we have to be careful with going and doing research. I feel like Gloria Becker was a specific case of someone who has the background from that specific place, has intimate relationships with people in that space. It's different when we, you know, educated um, in a Western nice university go over there with our western cultural logic which we may or may not realize very often do not realize that it's uh, western cultural logic because it's so naturalized and universalized like the air that we breathe so we can go over there and impose our western cultural logic i'm thinking of specifically the invention of women oyebumi oyeronke um, where well-meaning feminist scholars went to Yoruba, I think they were anthropologists, and saw certain, oh, sorry, my alarm, cultural practices, and they saw, said, oh, that's gender, which is, was not, the Yoruba didn't know gender, didn't have gender in our culture, and so they invented gender for the Yoruba, causing actual harm, epistemic genocide, etc., and so forth. So now the Yoruba know gender and practice gender. So things like that, I feel, especially Suriname, we have a lot of stasheras there, 
know, we are being, it's like a invasion of the stachetas every, you know, term. Um, um, you know, that's why I'm like, oh, hold up, wait a minute. <laughs> that's why I'm making this comment. Like, I feel like this is something that needs to be discussed. Mm -hmm. Because there, there are certain debates, you know, about like certain fields are very reflective now, like anthropology. I'm in um, cultural analysis. We're very reflective and very critical. But what I feel like is missing is self-criticism. And even when you are self-critical, like you can publish your journal and have other critical people read it. But if you're all coming from the same place, from the same cultural logic, even though you're all critical together, you may still have some blind spots that you don't see. So I feel, I don't know if this is something for the workshop. I don't know what y'all want to do in a workshop, but I feel like in the whole debate about should we teach Plato and Aristotle and Kant and Hegel, should you know how are we self-critical how are we critical of Foucault Derrida etc mm -hmm. what I feel is missing is self-criticism mm -hmm. with the, the 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 you know taking account that we also have certain blind spots you know certain things that we don't these well-meaning feminists didn't realize that gender is not a thing like every class that I take in my program mm -hmm. discusses gender you mm -hmm. know so for me, I, when I read The Invention of Women, I was like, oh, shit, gender was colonial, hey, you know, and, and I realized when I look at my own culture, it's like, yeah, it's, it's colonial, it's not a thing that we have hmm. everywhere, like, it's not omnipresent, but if you are in a westernized university, you would think, oh, gender is omnipresent, like, the, 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 the you know, the air that I breathe is, like, everywhere, you don't even realize that it's there, like, air, you know? So, yeah, I, I feel like, yeah, do research, but with a caveat that you don't cause harm. Like, I feel like, yeah, don't cause harm should be the starting point, but also realizing that because we come from a hegemonic system, we can cause harm. Like, it's inevitable. And how do we, like, what tools can we develop? amongst ourselves as decolonial thinkers and as scholars who don't want to go over there and cause harm maybe shouldn't go over there and cause you know i don't know but like the don't don't cause harm is something that i'm really thinking about and i'm struggling with because i also see the things that i write maybe i come back to it in a year and i'm a student so like the harm that i cause is minimal but still you know um i feel like the 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 uh, the things that I have access to in the Ufa Singer library, for instance, they're outdated, mm -hmm. you know. So I may use once I used I was writing about Louise Bennett. I don't know if you know the Jamaican poet, mm -hmm. and my sources were outdated, you know? And then when I came back to it, I was like, shit, you know, the way they talk about um, Patois, for instance, as though it's like a dialect or, you know, like, no, it's not, you know, it's a language. And, and that um, um, 
is is also you know colonial to see it like a dialect or something that is sub you know or that is um secondary or less than or you know is very colonial way of looking at it so that's one example that i can give that as a, a student who's you know i see myself as someone who's very decolonial but i still because this cultural logic is so omnipresent like the air that i breathe um i still you know do things that cause harm that could cause harm like saying patwa is a dialect or whatever you know when it's it's a language now and people have fought since the beginning to say that it's a, including louise bennett ironically that I, who i was writing about so yeah yeah Would yeah you... so i think so I, I agree with everything uh i want to add maybe a footnote so I think because you ask also what can we what kind of tools can we create right yeah. and I think Gloria gives us this because for example Gloria was born in Suriname but moved when she was one to the Netherlands right and mm -hmm. when she writes politics of passion she meets this very old lady where she also has a relationship with this lady right yeah. and I think we read we we both read this text together once, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. it was like the novel, the the opening, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so in this um in this introduction, she also mentions the mistakes she did, right? Yeah. So she also talks about that. So she was she read about the Mati in books by by white like old white man, but she didn't know it was existed, and she made a lot of mistakes how she addressed uh, Miss Julie, I think, as, as she called. Um, so in a sense, I think this reflective can also be put into actual work. So we can also, so one, I agree with you, we shouldn't be trying to make mistakes, but we can also be reflective in our work instead of showing a very neat picture. We can also say, shit i went to this interview and i mistakenly uh, said patois as a dialect and because of that this person got mad so then people know right so it's also it's a it's a it's a it's a complicated thing and i agree with you that i uh we shouldn't how can i say this so i'm also very wary to also send my students wherever i think you should have a kind of a intersection with the people you want to uh, study uh, for lots of reasons yeah I think Max has a question maybe more clarification because I totally agree with uh, what Disco Fox added like let's not do harm studying again um, the other what I meant more in the question was that with White Innocence she was one of the first in the Dutch context to study whiteness so uh, yeah. Looking back from, let's say, the other side to what's the psychology of, let's say, the oppressor and how that functions. So studying that heteronormativity, because what I liked about the audio fragment that you showed was that actually the interviewer was subtly quite made ridiculous because she was quite a mirror. Like, I don't know what you're even worried about. And was a bit the same with this crone that is like, oh, my God, these women are kissing, you know, and being all worried about it like mm -hmm. so it's for me it's like it tells something more about them than on the other side but you usually we study what is not the norm yep. 
Um, so I was that was where the question came from. Can we look back? Because they're acting really ridiculous. I can't get into their mind state. But it has to be understood because apparently quite a big chunk of society um, yeah, is functioning in that way. So that was more where yeah. the question was directed from. Like, can we study them back? Right, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think so I, I uh, yeah, still, I don't know anyone, but I think it, it's something we should study. And in my case, it's actually indeed more interesting to study the, the three people writing about Cambrada um, and the church instead of the Cambrada themselves, right? Uh, because in my, in my case, it's also... Um, it's also sometimes I think by highlighting or making something more visible, it also uh, makes them uh, a, a target, right? Um, also in an epistemological sense. So for me, it's more interesting to say, okay, there's this guy fascinated by these women. Why, you know? And try to to understand that that psyche instead of uh, the other way around. So yeah, thank you for that. I think Disco Fox has another question. Yeah, I do. So it's interesting that you are talking about by studying them, you also make them a target. It makes me think of Grisans for opacity, this decree, we have the right to opacity. But also um, going back to when we coming from a westernized university setting, we look at a different, so I was recently, I read, or I'm in the process of reading Sylvia Winters, mm -hmm. uh, interesting article, it's called, with a funny title, The Pope Must Have Been Drunk and the King of Castilla, a Madman, I don't know if you know it, from 1995, it's, um, it's online, it's open, mm -hmm. you can find it, a PDF, anyway, this is like, this is what I'm talking about. Like when you mentioned this um, episode with uh, Gloria Becker in Politics of Passion, is somebody from that culture herself, so come, someone from income, a different cultural logic, pointed out to her like, no, no, no. So to this person from this different cultural logic, what we come in with and oppose on them, our few, is like, like we're drunk. You know, like we're drunk. Mm -hmm. And I like in my reflection, mm -hmm. I feel like because like if you have your work read by someone else, like mm -hmm. a teacher or a friend or a decolonial comrade or whoever, they're also coming from the dif different culture logic. Yes. But someone coming from a totally different culture logic, like this um, Gloria Vekas Mati, or mm -hmm. the people looking at what the Pope and the King of Castilla do, were doing and thinking they're drunk, they're mad, you know? Mm -hmm. They have a different view and they point out to you like this. So, but, so I was thinking the only way of knowing this is that what we're doing, our way of thinking, also the, per, the, the why I know that calling Patwa a dialect is not correct is also because someone from that other culture logic told me when I was talking to them about my essay. So I like that could be a tool, but mm -hmm. on the other hand, 
how can that like someone else from a different cultural lo logic checking our work could be a tool but also like it could also be a burden another way of colonizing up imposing oppressing whatever so like if this is a tool how do you do it you know unpaid labor how do mm. you do it in a way that you don't you know <laughs> yeah that you don't created another problem on top of you know what's already happening mm -hmm. um, um and even if it's people in a university because in this essay by um um sylvia winter the, the pope must have been drunk there's also this issue of the people who are educated in mm -hmm. the in the colonies or neo colonies they're from a certain class Edu very often educated in the west so they have also this western cultural logic or they have this privileged position because they also oppress like mm -hmm. how do you know that they're really you know um mm -hmm. not causing harm that you know that our agenda is not to cause harm i don't know if we're going if we can answer this question because it's very heavy and a lot but i feel like I'm still, you know, thinking of the tools. Mm -hmm. And I I think that, yeah, like you said, one of the tools is like how Gloria Becker did it. Mm -hmm. But it's difficult. And also like my friend told me, hey, what the fuck, you know? So mm -hmm. it's it's difficult to establish unless you unless you have these relationships, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think this is, is yeah. very I think it's a difficult it's a very difficult difficult question. And I think so from not talking about it, so this is these white men, old white men doing uh, research without thinking about it from now, we are reflecting upon it and hopefully we can come with a set of tools, a better tools. I think some of the tools you mentioned are great. And people are using it, but indeed creates other problems. Like how do you reimburse time and 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 money and and, and so it's a very complicated opacity. issue. Huh? Opacity, opacity as well, the opacity. right to opacity. Yeah. Like all of these things, we have to take into account. And I feel like in all the debates that I've seen so far, obviously, you know, I'm not clued into everything. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of people are discussing it. I've, I I remember that we were discussing when we were in the reading group for Gloria Becker, like her um, approach was very unorthodox. Yeah, then and now. The fact that is very unorthodox and she realizes that, you know, it was just also quite remarkable that she shows us this very unorthodox approach. Yeah. So maybe the answer is, we have to approach things in a very unorthodox way that is not the <laughs> the regular way. Yeah. And and yeah. if we yeah. do so, how taking into account opacity, the fact that certain communities are very precarious, so opacity is actually preserving life, and so on and so forth, labor and so on and so forth. And I yeah. see this coming back in the answers that the Fridi, was it Fridi? Yeah. Fridi Martina. Yeah. The, the, the fragment that you that you let us hear. Mm -hmm. 
she was very you know evasive yeah. maneuvers yeah yeah you know she's not giving a straight answer right mm-hmm. yeah i think it is a it's a very complicated question and i i also don't think we should copy the methods of politics of passion because it's a very controversial also I don't know if it goes into the ethical committee nowadays because she had a relationship. So it's a it's a very messy and great reading, but it's a very difficult thing. And I think we still need to grapple with how to do it. And I, I like your suggestion to create relationships, basically. I think Jacob also has a question. Yes, I do have a question. It's um also just a time note about got about 10 more minutes of this session but um I wanted to maybe I'm taking this question a little bit away but it still is kind of related um and part of why I was so excited about this session is something I noticed a lot I noticed a lot happening is there's people who are involved in decolonization maybe elders men of color um who have these goals of decolonization and have these widespread goals but when it comes to gender and sexuality are still very um backwards in thinking and so um this was part of one of the things I wanted to maybe workshop is like how how you how to go about that like how when you're in a social in a setting an activist setting and you're talking about decolonization and you get just completely shut down by perhaps an older man who has these goals of decolonization but still has these very western views on um gender and sexuality and almost these sexist mentalities and it's a very it's kind of this 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 interesting combination right of decolonizing mindset but still like holding on to like these other parts does that make sense yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this is. I think we have this conversation over the phone uh, for for a bit, and um, I will say first how I feel, and then what I wanted to do in this workshop, uh, because we cannot do it anymore. But so I feel. Uh, so I don't know how people see me. So I don't know. Uh, this is this is up to them, but so I feel sometimes very uneasy in a lot of these spaces. Um, and I don't know how to approach uh, these people, these these men. Uh, and sometimes you experience, and I see a lot of these interactions of how people are treated, right? So what I wanted to do in this workshop, and maybe you can take it as a as an exercise, and we everyone meeting. So I wanted to you to tell me or not tell me but to upload via a platform called padlet um, experiences with machismo experiences with sexism or bias towards gender sexual non-conforming groups um, and then to have a set of answers and then as a group or in breakout uh, groups to then do this idea of care. I don't know if you know the, the, the concept of care framework, which is, so I will put it in the in the chat. And it's basically a start for conversations, right? So 
Um, first is to contextualize it. So the person who submitted the, the, the situation contextualizes the experience um, and tries to understand the root of it, right? So try to understand what, what came about, blah, blah. Then the next step is together to analyze it. So break down uh, the experience into different elements, yeah? Um, so you ask for, is it perpetuating a form of hegemony? Which one? Is it steep in patriarchal values? How so? Is it the byproduct of colonial position? How do you see that? And then it's a question of reconstruction. So then it's about let's redo the whole situation through a decolonial sense. What it then what decolonial means to us? Um, how would this issue be approached differently in a society free from patriarchal colonial legacies? So then you rephrase the the situation together through a conversation and discussion, right? And then the last one, which is the most important one, is to focus on actionable steps that can empower individuals and communities uh, to address the issues in their day-to-day -day lives. So for me, it is, again, not a, not a very clear-cut, this is a tool you need to press and then it will be fine. Because I do think, even in my case, where I'm a bit uh, hesitant, I think there's a conversation that needs to be had that is not happening, right? Um, and these are, especially these people that are our comrades, right? So I think through this, these steps, I will now enter. Maybe it can help. Uh, to, to start a conversation. Um, because sometimes, so uh, yeah, so it's sometimes it's more have to do with um, unknowingness. And I would like to think that is not always very, um, especially with comrades, I, I must stress, it's not always from a very, um, bad intention so that's why i think conversation is very interesting so this is a long-winded answer to your question no i appreciate it thank you it's good it's a good tool um maybe we can open it up for one last question um yeah One question. Yes, yeah, anyone else have a question or comment or thing thing to workshop? I guess that was what the workshop was gonna be, right? Was talking about experiences. Maybe we could mention another experience before mm -hmm. we wrap up. Yeah, Max. Maybe more message of hope with let's say the 
difference in generations that sometimes I feel we cannot change everyone's mindset anymore at a certain point. But I do feel like um, for the next generation, it has the capacity to relearn and that it's going to change. So it's like a, a dying idea, let's say, the heteronormativity. So it's also like, a, so it's more like I, I sometimes try to focus on what's coming next and not put too much energy in something we cannot change anymore in certain uh, generations. I hope that I'm right, but uh, that's, I don't know, my sense of hope. Yeah. Do we do the exercise or should we stop? Or oh, Ikmara? Mm -hmm. Yes, hi, um, can you hear me? Yes. Perfect. I'm leaving my camera off because I have uh, my clothes in the back. Anyways, um, so uh, going back to what Disco Fox said about we have to be careful um, when doing research and stuff, what is concerning me a little bit as well, for example, um, if we are going to research, let's say, for example, Aruba or Curacao, and if the researcher also comes from those spaces, yeah, the people that are being researched go along with what is uh, happening in the western world so for example on aruba and curacao and bonaire as well in papiamento we don't really know about pronunciations because we only have one for everyone and it's it and for me writing ikmarashi day is still odd to this day to write this and so even though if we're trying to be careful ourselves, you still have this situation of on the spot itself, it goes along with the Western way of categorizing or boxing in. Mm -hmm. And that can also maybe influence then how the researcher will have a look at the ones that are being researched. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's, it was more a concern instead of like a, a question. So even if we try to be careful, there's still this, this, this way of uh, the space putting themselves in a box because they want to go along with the Western situation mm -hmm. and neglecting um, their own yeah, knowledge, you could say, what they have in their own country. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so while I'm just listening to you, I'm also thinking, uh, because you are also my student, so I'm thinking, oh, I need to also think for you in different ways. <laughs> and um, I just wonder now that we don't do a lot of, we don't use the, the A a lot. So uh, while a lot of people use this idea of they, right, in English from the Dutch Korean islands, I think it's very interesting also to use the A, right? In these instances. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. Uh, which I never thought before this. Uh, because but I also use the A now, sorry, I'm interrupt. Yeah. Um, if I use the A now, but we're having a discussion in English, mm. then it takes away the context that I'm trying to force something that is actually the everyday okay. so that the other person so that I can accommodate the other person if I use the it instead of she did. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it, it's actually, so yeah, so indeed the A would only make sense within a Western context, 
right? So it's it's only critiquing then the Western centric notion, but not in the local context, because in a local context, the A is for everyone, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. I think it's something I, I don't have an answer to, <laughs> but um, it's an interesting thought, uh, especially um, this idea of uh, going back to Aruba or Curacao and finding something that is that is also removed from uh, Western ideas. So this is a very interesting deal. We need to talk about it uh, more. Awesome. Um, well, we're running out of time right now, but we can maybe we can stop the recording and then if people want to hang out and talk for a bit, um, they can do that. But I wanted to also first just thank you. Uh, we hope you enjoy the session and make sure to like and follow our page, Adeles.